verses 25 to 37. So if you've brought your, your Bibles, if you want to open your apps, if you can uh, have it on that passage, that'd be great. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when, they saw them, when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Um, brilliant. If you do have Bibles, uh, do turn to uh, Luke chapter 10, and we'll have a look at this groundbreaking story that really has shaped the modern world. And uh, I want to show you whether you've never been to church before in your life, if you've never cracked open a Bible before, I want to show you how this story has absolutely shaped you and your moral sensibilities and the assumptions that you have and the gut instincts that you hold. Um, this story and this storyteller has completely shaped you whether you know it or not. And if you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to have confidence that this story and this storyteller has utterly shaped the world of your friends and your family. And that actually, as you start to talk to your friends about the compassion that's shown in this story, they are learning about something that is so familiar to them. And I want to help us to pull at the thread of compassion and find that on the other end of that is Jesus. And hopefully, by the end of this morning, you'll have some idea about how to have those conversations where you can start with the compassion of the Good Samaritan and work your way towards Jesus and that it makes sense with your friends, that it resonates with them because Jesus has not only built your world, he hasn't just shaped your moral sensibilities, he really has shaped the sensibilities of everyone in Cambridge. He really has. And we'll see that. Um, the last time I preached on Luke chapter 10, I was on the way to church. I had spent the night with a friend. I was preaching in a, in a new church in a different city. And on the way to church, I was about to preach on this passage in which there is a distressed individual, shall we say, who is left for dead. And there are a couple of religious authorities that pass on by and do not show compassion. And we've all learnt to say boo hiss as they pass on by. And I'll see where that moral sensibility comes from as we go. 
But the story is all about how the religious are not the ones who help in the situation. They pass on by, and this, this enemy, this Samaritan from the wrong tribe, the wrong religion, the wrong nationality, the wrong everything, he's the guy who actually shows the compassion that is commended by Jesus. I'm about to preach on this passage. As we drive to church, we go underneath this underpass, and I look up over the, uh, 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 over the underpass. Under the, I'm under the overpass. There's a guy who's going over me, and he is straddling the, the railing, the fence. He's in a very distressed state of mind, and he looks like he might jump. And we keep driving. How do you feel about that? I mean, you've got to understand, I'm a religious authority. I have a very important job to do that morning. It's a Sunday morning. I have places to be. You can't just stop for every distressed individual, can you? And so we passed on, but we kept on driving. Did you feel the way the room went quiet just then? Did you feel that? Let me provide some more context. There were police officers on one side of him. There was an ambulance crew at the bottom. In one sense, the Good Samaritan had already arrived. In a very significant sense, if I had stopped to offer help, I would have only gotten in the way. I mean, if, if the guy had some questions about some verses in Deuteronomy, I'm your man. But <laughs> this was probably beyond my skill set. So we said a prayer, and we kept going. But already, you're kind of feeling the tension. We feel the tension in the car. Should we stop? It feels so wrong to pass on by when you find need. It feels so wrong that actually we have outsourced the job of the Good Samaritan to the police and the ambulance and the National Health Service and Social Security and all. Like, we really believe in the Good Samaritan. We really believe that you should not pass on by. That question that was asked in Genesis chapter 4, right at the beginning of the Bible, am I my brother's keeper? We all want to answer, yes, of course I am my brother's keeper. We're in solidarity. We should show compassion to the weak and the marginalized. Should we not? And everyone in this room says, amen, whether you're a Christian or not. And everyone in Cambridge says, amen, whether they are a Christian or not. You know what that makes your friends? It makes them believers. Because compassion is not scientifically demonstrable. You can't put it in a test tube. You can't prove it with a logical syllogism. It's not, the, it's not the end result of a mathematical equation. Therefore, you should always look after the weak and the poor and the marginalized. Why? Why should you look after the weak and the poor and the marginalized? Do you know why? Because of this story and this storyteller. He is the one who has taught the world that compassion is this superordinate value that, just, that we must submit to. And you believe in it really strongly. And your friends, I assume, unless they're like really Nietzschean kind of nihilists, and this is Cambridge, there'll be some of those, won't there, right? <laughs> but the mo most of your friends, right, <laughs> will really believe in compassion. And they'll believe in compassion more than they believe in their avowed atheism. Right? You talk to your friends, I'm an atheist, right? But do you believe in compassion? Yes. Can you prove that? No. Can you demonstrate that logically? No. Can you describe the scientific experiment that has like, given you your belief in compassion? No. So what do you call that? Why don't we just call this a belief, right? 
and your friends believe in compassion more than they believe that this is a godless universe. And they, they might tell you this is a godless universe. No one's up there, no one cares, and yet they care. And they really deeply care about caring. Where has that come from? It has not come from their atheism, right? It has come from this story and this storyteller. Let's have a look at it. Luke 10, slap bang in the middle of Luke's gospel. Verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he might be a teacher in the law, but he's a confused teacher of the law, isn't he? And you can see the confusion in his question. How do I inherit eternal life? What do I do in order to inherit? Do you see how doing and inheriting are two very different concepts? If I said to my mother, mother, what must I do to inherit grandpa's stamp collection? She would probably say, just don't tick him off too much, okay? Like, if you're in the family, you're in the will, you don't do anything to inherit, right? You're in the family. You belong. Therefore, you will inherit. And it's the same with eternal life, okay? You don't do anything to inherit eternal life because eternal life is a family affair. It's something you inherit on the basis of the death of somebody else. Christ dies, but I am in the family. And so as he rises again, he bequeaths to me his last will and testament. That's where we get Old Testament, New Testament from. The whole Bible is basically the reading of a will. On the basis of Jesus' death, the family inherits his entire estate. It's good news. What do you do to inherit it? Well, you just got to be in the family. Are you in the family? And the only way you get into families is not by achieving or performing. You don't audition for a family, do you? Like, we have a birth child and we have an adoptive child in our family. And I guess that those are the two ways into a family. We didn't ask either child to audition for the role, okay? It's about the prior love of parents that bring you into the family. You don't do anything. My son didn't do anything. My daughter didn't do anything. They're in the family. So they're in on the inheritance, I guess. So this guy, he's a teacher of the law, but he's a confused teacher of the law. He asks this question. So Jesus is going to have to do some work with him. I love what Jesus does. Verse 26. This is great. If you're a Christian, you want to interact with the questions that your friends have. What does Jesus do? He asks a question back. He says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Isn't that beautiful? He asks a question back, and then he turns it into a really personal question. What's your journey been with this whole subject? Do you do that with questions? I'm, I'm terrible with questions. You'll, you'll see that as we do the Q&A later. So, someone asks a question, and it triggers me on this whole sort of file that I've got in the filing cabinet of my brain. And I go into the file, and I just blurt out like everything I've ever read about a partic particular subject. That's not how Jesus did it. Jesus is asked hundreds of questions in the Gospels. Do you know how many he answers? Three. <laughs> if you can find a fourth, let me know afterwards. But I, I, I've counted up three times where he just gives a straight answer to a straight question. Right? Usually what he does is, what do you mean by that? How do you read the, the law? Or we'll see another thing he does in a second. But he asks the question back. And in verse 27, this teacher of the law, he, he knows something. He's understood something of the scriptures. He answered, 
Deuteronomy chapter six. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And Leviticus chapter 19, love your neighbor as yourself. And he's bringing together these two great scriptures, one about this vertical love for God, another about this horizontal love for anyone who comes across your path. It's the most beautiful vision for life, isn't it? To love your maker with everything and to love those who come across your path with everything. It's this outwardly curved life. And it's the opposite of my natural life, and it's the opposite of your natural life. How do you naturally live life? You sort of fold your arms, don't you? And you keep yourself to yourself. And maybe if you've got a little bit of excess, and this person who's very near and dear to you really needs it, and your blood sugar is sufficiently high in that moment, you sort of overflow with, with a bit of a teaspoon and you dole out whatever blessing that you've got. That's the way we love, don't we? We cling, right? We grab, we take, and we curve ourselves in on ourselves. And what does Jesus say? What, is, what do the scriptures say is the good life? The good life is the opposite, right? Just love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And the, and the Bible even says that this is what God is like. That Jesus, the storyteller here, is an eternal storyteller. He was there before the world began, always loving God his Father, always loving his neighbor, the Spirit, as he loves himself. In fact, uh, earlier in Luke's gospel, you can have a look up at verse 21. I love this verse. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That's a window on eternity. What Jesus does in verse 21 is what he has always been doing. Full of joy through the Spirit, he's been praising the Father. And the Bible says, before there was a universe, there was compassion. Before there was a world, there was love. A father loving his son, Jesus, in the joy of the Spirit. Jesus loving his father back in the joy of the Spirit. There has always been compassion. Which means when the Bible describes the good life, it's really describing Jesus' life. He is the one who has always loved God his Father with everything. He has always loved his neighbor, the Spirit, with everything. And when that love went global in creation, this God has continued to love. And when this love was earthed in the incarnation, Jesus came to take that love and spread it around, right? To live the eternal life of love and to anchor it into our humanity that we might spread it to the nations. It's a beautiful vision. And... If you are not a Christian, you're just looking into these things, you're in the right place. This is a great church where you can wrestle with these truths, wrestle with these scriptures, get to see who Jesus is. Ask yourself the question, is he the compassion that I believe in? Is he the love that tugs at my heartstrings? I think you'll find, yes, he is. He's love on legs. He's compassion covered over in skin. And as you get to know him through the scriptures and through the people of God here, I think you'll come to see that, yes, this universe really does thrum with the vibration of love because God is love and we're invited. This is good news. And, and if you start to walk away from this, you'll be walking away from love. You'll be walking away from the one view of reality that actually accords with what your heart is telling you. What your heart is telling you is, is that love is the greatest thing. Maybe your heart is telling you that love is the greatest thing because the greatest thing, God, is love. But God is love. Jesus is love incarnate. 
But am I love? Am I somebody who is continually loving my maker with everything and loving everyone who comes across my path, even as much as I love myself? You're kidding me. Like, I'm not, I am not that person. I am not the person described by the Bible. This person who loves God and loves neighbor with everything. I, I realized that a few years ago. I was, I was preaching on, you know the bit in John's gospel, it's just the night before Jesus dies. And you would think that the Son of God would have other things on his mind. He's just hours away from God-forsaken execution. And you know what he does? He, he gets up from his place of honor. He takes off the robe, the clothing of a king. He wraps a towel around himself, the clothing of a servant, and he washes his disciples' filthy feet. And I was just preaching this, and it was kind of overwhelming me to the point where I had a thought when I was preaching that I'd never had before, and stupid me, I thought I'd articulate a thought I'd never had before <laughs> while I was preaching. It was a dangerous thing to do. But I just, I just said, you know what? I've never washed it anyone else's feet. I've, I've never washed feet. And here is Jesus the night before he dies, and he's washing feet. And it was, just, it was just a stunning act of compassion, of condescension, of humility, of love. After the service, uh, a guy who'd just come to faith, he's from a Chinese background, he'd just come to faith in the last three months, and his first words to me were, you're wrong. It's like, Am I? Oh, three months in? Three, oh, this, this ought to be good. Oh, I'm wrong. He said, there's someone whose feet you wash every day. Your own. I was like, oh, you're so right. right. Man, isn't that convicting? Love your neighbor as yourself, says the Bible. I love myself in incredibly granular ways, in very particular ways. I lavish care on myself that I would never think of lavishing even on my nearest and dearest. <laughs> Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Are you kidding me? Of course you don't. This love is real. This love is ultimate. Is this love you? Is this love me? It's not. And I think that this teacher in the law, he starts to feel the temperature being turned up on him. Jesus wants to turn the temperature up even more. He says, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Are you going to be the Messiah, the Son of God? Are you going to be the one who is love? Okay, do it. Have a go. And at this point... The teacher of the law does what you and I naturally do. When the, when the heat gets turned up and when the bar for moral behavior gets raised, we want to distract, don't we? We want to point to all the other people who might not be doing as well as we're doing. So what does he do? Verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, uh, and who is my neighbor? Can we please define terms? Can we please, can we please limit the circle of love that I'm meant to share? Because like I say, I, you know, I'm a very loving person, if my blood sugar is sufficiently high, and to people who love me and who are my nearest and dearest. Within that circle, oh, I can be loving. Sure I can. But then what about that person? What about those people? What about even my enemy? You know, and what Jesus is doing is constantly in the Gospels, just kind of expanding the circle all the way to the very fringes of human society, even to Samaritans. Like, even that you love that person, even as you love yourself, 
goodness me, he's wanting us to realize that love is ultimate, but I am not love. I fall far short of this. And so the guy asks, and who is my neighbor? Can I, can I keep this thing manageable, this compassion revolution? Can, can I be at the center of this compassion revolution? And, and can I be in charge of the guest list? And Jesus is like, no. Except he doesn't just say no, because Jesus never just says no, does he? In response to this second question, and who is my neighbor? Jesus does this beautiful thing. He tells a story. Tells the most brilliant story. And again, if you're a Christian and you're interacting with non-Christians, they have all sorts of questions. Here's another thing you can do. Don't just ask a question. Don't just say, you know, what's been your history with this issue? You can also take things to 30,000 feet and tell a story. The Bible's full of, of not just Jesus, but the prophets and the apostles doing all, all this kind of stuff all the time. But this story is hard to beat. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So far, so conventional. Ancient stories were all like that. You know, Aesop's fables, they're, they're, all, they're all kind of like that, aren't they? There's a person who is doing what they're not meant to be doing. Maybe they're out late at night somewhere they're not meant to be and they fall foul of the locals, and they end up left for dead. Idiots. <laughs> Don't be like that guy, right? If you read Aesop's Fables, it's all like that. Like, like, there's a lot, and there's a lot of wisdom to saying, Don't go out late at night in places where you're not meant to be. Don't, get, you know, don't go down that road. Right? And it's all about knowing your limits and just living safely and navigating life according to the constraints that nature has put upon you. That's, that's sort of the ancient wisdom. It's not what Jesus is doing at all, though, in this story. Here is a guy who is a man. You know that Adam, the word Adam just means man. It's just the, the name for humanity. Who, he fell from a kind of a heavenly city, didn't he? And th this man here, he's going down from Jerusalem, this heavenly city, to Jericho, right on the eastern fringes of the land, east of this Edenic paradise. He's fallen. He's a fallen man, left for dead. And then verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side of the road. Now, how would this story have been striking people as they, as they hear Jesus speak? If there was a Roman centurion overhearing Jesus tell the tale, he'd be interested because, you know, the, the classical stories would be all about not being the guy beaten up by the side of the road. But this story seems to be different. And, and if you're a Jewish listener, you might be thinking about certain Levitical rules and the fact that the priest needed to get to the temple and needed to be ceremonially clean, right? He needed to not engage. He needed to not involve himself. He needed to not intervene in this situation because he had to keep himself pure. And you might read this story and think, the priest, no harm, no foul. Didn't do anything wrong. I mean, technically, technically, has he done anything wrong? You might, you might be thinking that as you read this story. 
Then verse 32, so to a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him pass by on the other side. If a priest is more involved in the actual sacrifices of the Old Testament, the Levite is part of that same priestly class, but more involved in the teaching aspect of the, of the Levitical tribe. So you've kind of got like the law and the prophets going past, don't you? Man has fallen, left for dead, perishing. Along comes the law. Is the law going to save him? Oh, the law is good. The law is holy. The law is righteous. The law describes the life of love. But does the law actually save? Does the law actually produce the life of love? that it describes? Does the law actually give life? Well, the priest passes on by. The Levites, you might say the prophets, come along, full of truth, full of wisdom, wonderful descriptions of the life of love, but do they produce the life of love? Do they give life? Do they save? Well, they pass by on the other side. But there's a third figure. Verse 33 but a Samaritan, one from completely outside the system. Not a priest, not a Levite, not even an Israelite. Someone from another tribe, someone considered to be an enemy. As he traveled, he came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Pity, that's our word compassion, same word, compassion, pity. In Greek, it's a word that's related to the, the word for spleen. It's the word for guts, the word for intestines, right? Because I think ancient people had this right, that you feel love not simply in your heart. More profoundly, you feel it in the guts, don't you? You get crook in the guts, as an Australian would say. You feel stomach-churning pity, gut-wrenching compassion. And in the Gospels... The number one way of describing Jesus' emotional life is he took pity. He sees the crowds harassed and helpless, so he takes pity on them and he feeds them. Earlier in Luke's gospel, there's a woman with a, a son. Her only son has died and he takes pity on the situation. He raises the lad. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus sees a, a leper and he takes pity on the man. He's gut-wrenchingly moved to reach out and bring compassion, bring healing. It's a word that uniquely describes Jesus. No one else in the Bible is given this word. No one else feels the way Jesus feels. How does he feel? He's got stomach-churning love. And by coincidence, this Samaritan guy in Jesus' story, one who's outside the system, he comes, he sees, he takes pity. He went to him, verse 34, and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And you think, that's a funny first aid kit, isn't it? <laughs> so, quick, where's the Merlot? I need, like, <laughs> olive oil, wine? Well, partly it's an ancient thing. Partly it's a scriptural thing, though. You could do a word study on oil you would find oil is representing the spirit all throughout the scriptures. You could do a word study in wine. You know what wine represents in the scriptures, don't you? Blood from the very first book of the Bible, the blood of the grape. And so here comes this stranger from outside the system, one who is uniquely compassionate, who sees the fallen man perishing, who comes to him, comes to him who does not pass on by, but actually 
engages the person, pouring out the oil of his spirit, pouring out the blood of his wine, the wine of his blood. And here comes this one from outside the system who loves him, puts the man on his own beast. More literally, ancient people thought of the body like a beast. Brought him to an inn and took care of him. Why did he take him to an inn? Why didn't he take him to a hospital? Well, because Christians hadn't gotten around to inventing hospitals yet. They would. Based on this story and based on this storyteller, Christians would be at the forefront of actually bringing about a cascade of hospitals, such that now we take it for granted, the compassion revolution that was revolutionary, we, we take it for granted nowadays. It had to be an inn at this stage, but he's taken to an inn. The next day, verse 35, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. The one thing you learn about denarii in the Gospels is it's a day's wage. It gets you through a day, a denarius. And so he's got enough for two days here. He's going to give two days' worth of care in the inn. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So when's he coming back? One day? Two days? I guess he's coming back on the third day, isn't he? This extraordinary, beautiful stranger who has such Christ-like compassion, comes from outside the system, pours out blood and oil and on the third day brings about a, a full healing. So he tells the story. Cool story, bro. <laughs> what a story. It's, it's a story that has built your world. It's built your friend's world. And then I love what Jesus does. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? That's interesting. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. All right, we're in Cambridge. We can, we can figure this out. Let's figure out whose sandals are we meant to be in as we hear this story. Initially, whose sandals are you meant to be in as you hear this story? Remember the framing question. The framing question, verse 29, who is my neighbor? So he's asking, who is a neighbor to me, says the lawyer. Who is a neighbor to me? And Jesus says, right you are, who is a neighbor to the man who's fallen by the wayside? Right? The lawyer says, who's a neighbor to me? Jesus says, right you are, who is a neighbor to the man left for dead? Do you see whose sandals we're meant to? I'll do it one more time. I'll do it one more time. <laughs> who is a neighbor to me, says the lawyer. Jesus says, exactly. Who is a neighbor to the man who's perishing by the wayside? And the law has passed him by, and the prophets don't heal him. But a beautiful savior comes from out of nowhere, one who is considered an enemy. And he takes pity. He takes compassion. He affects an intervention. He draws near. He pours out blood and spirit and raises you up. Who are you meant to be in this story? Into whose sandals should you place yourself? In the first instance, you're the beaten up guy, aren't you? You're the idiot who probably was out late one night somewhere you are not meant to be. You are not love himself, are you? You're the one, like me, who has lived their lives clutching and 
grabbing and taking and curving yourself in on yourself. And here we are perishing in our own selfishness. And who is Jesus? He's the beautiful stranger who came and stooped and served and suffered and bled and died for you. He's poured out his blood for you. And on the third day, he rose again to raise you on your feet, to heal you, to pour out his spirit upon you. And then, he says, go and do likewise, right? Then he says, go and do likewise. That's, that's where it ends up. Verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, okay, now that you've got all of that story, now that you've inhabited that role, now that you've been raised on your feet and filled with that spirit, now go and do likewise. But don't first try to be the good Samaritan. The compassion revolution will never work if you think you are the compassionate one. Because you're not. You're as selfish as I am, okay? And we're all as selfish as each other. We need the love of the Good Samaritan to set us on our feet, and then we flow out to the nations. And that's the way it always works. It works in the negative, and it works in the positive. You know that saying, hurt people hurt people? Have you heard that? It's this idea that, like, if you have been constantly traumatized and hurt and abused in certain situations, if you don't... If you're not able to process that in, in, in the right sort of ways, then you might well end up just hurting other people, passing it on. Hurt people hurt people. There are ways out of that cycle, by the way, through this Jesus, through the one who himself took all the hurt of the world and transformed it into healing, and, and he can do that work in your life. You, you can be a hurt person who ends up healing others. Some of the most profound healers are those who have been profoundly hurt. But naturally, that's the way it works, isn't it? Hurt people hurt people. But also, loved people love people, don't they? Those who have been just profoundly loved when they were unworthy, when they were helpless, when they were left for dead. Those who have been loved, my goodness, what a compassion revolution has flowed out from there. And for the past 2,000 years, we've been telling this story, and we've been meditating on this storyteller, the one who himself poured himself out with every drop of his blood, who rose up again, and he said to the world, hey, I've got a little thing going. It's called Christianity, a.k.a. a compassion revolution. Are you in? And anyone can come in on it. You can come in on it this morning. You can just say, you know what? In myself, I recognize that love is ultimate, but I recognize that I am not this loving person. I need the blood of Jesus. I need the spirit of Jesus. I need that healing. And I really want to pass this thing on because it sounds kind of fun. Doesn't it sound kind of fun? To be loved and pass it on to the world. That's, that's the meaning of life. And maybe this morning there are people who want to come in on that and just say, Jesus, heal me and send me. And maybe you're a Christian this morning and you think, I want to pass this thing on. Well, first things first. Bring to him your bruises and your cuts. Ask to be healed first. Ask to be loved first. And then ask for the Lord to open your eyes to the many opportunities around you 
to love your neighbor, love those who come across your path. Don't be the Good Samaritan first, but with him and through him, you can pass on this compassion revolution to the nations.